Hello. G'day. Welcome back. If it's your first time, welcome. In farming businesses, it can be common practice to have a husband and wife team leading the charge. In agribusiness, it's a little bit less common. In fact, I'd say it's actually bloody unique. In the lead-up to this conversation, I'd had the chance to chat to David Edgerton Warburton on several different occasions. Thanks, Dave, for letting me pick your brain on all sorts of things, from strategy to staff to the early days of setting up your business, how you'd overcome it. And I was sitting there thinking, you know what, I need to get Dave on the podcast. Dave then said, well, actually, what about if you get my wife Nat on as well? This is where the story, I guess, gets quite cool. So Dave and Nat are the co-CEOs of AgriMaster. They've been doing it the whole time while raising their family, and I thought, I really want to pick their brain and understand how have they done it in terms of keeping their personal lives, growing their business, managing their team, raising their family, and how on earth have they done all these things? So their little business started in a garden shed in a backyard in Perth. Well, in its early days, Dave's old man was actually a software developer on the side of farming, and he developed this little software product that has evolved into AgriMaster today. So it did technically start on the farm, but let's not get away from that good story. So their little business started in a garden shed in their backyard in Perth. It's where they began hiring their first staff, and they even held the interviews in the garden shed so people, <laughs> so people knew what they were getting themselves in for. They then found a little office spot in their residential street before they outgrew this, moving the furniture and all their office things with shopping trolleys. It honestly just sounds like a movie. In this chat, we cover a fair bit of country. I mentioned I wanted to pick Dave's brain and Nat's brain on their strategy, how they'd employed staff, how they'd grown their business. But what I genuinely and truly admire is how Dave has been able to separate business and personal life. Both Dave and Nat are really big on the family time and family values, and that ability to step away from their business has only been reinforced earlier this year when their son Ferg was diagnosed with a brain tumour, while Dave and him were on a father-son hiking trip on the Kokoda track. It's true that single events can change your life, but I think what was amazing is just how optimistic and just the perspective that these two show, how they've been able to overcome adversity. And I think Ferg's getting incredible treatment and there was recently a little doco through the Ronald McDonald House to show a little bit of the journey that they've been on. But I think from a business perspective, what is truly remarkable is how AgriMaster has been able to remain relatively unchanged. While... Dave and Nat are splitting their time to be beside Ferg's bed. They've been able to empower their team. And at the core of all of this, they've been able to keep perspective on really what is just truly important. So let's get into this one. So you don't do many podcasts, Nat? Not usually. I'm always in the engine room. That's what I always say. You did the first one. Every business needs one. Yeah, that's me. But you were the first podcast. It was about you. I was. I did. Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. How'd that go? We launched with number one, didn't we? Yeah. It's good. We, we just did. did it at the kitchen table out there. We did, yeah. We did, it was very beers. casual. Nat mm. had champagne. I had beers. Yeah. I said, I think I need a drink for this. <laughs> <laughs> what did you take away from it, having the chance to sit down and get asked questions by Dave? Like, I don't actually ever mind it. It's just for me. I think because the role that I have, it's always on the go because it's obviously operations. So, you know, it's helping all the teams obviously implement everything we do. So, like, that's Dave's role. It's more the thinking, mm-hmm. whereas mine is very much keeping everything on the go and out the door. So I'm very reactionary. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I couldn't afford her if I wasn't married to her. So I was <laughs> brilliant. I mean, it'd be nice to sit and, like, contemplate a little bit more, but anyway, I'm not at that stage and yet. Not I don't slowing know. down. I don't know if I ever will be. No, you won't be. You're just like a give me a list and let me smash a list sort of a girl. Mm. A real doer. Mm. Oh, but yeah. also too it's like about solving real work issues that we have to deal with every day. Yeah. And I think that's actually how I stay really in touch with like the CS team or even the marketing girls about like what we have to communicate to our customers. And obviously that's where Dave and I work really well. Like I'll go, you know, We've got this real issue going on and I, I might help Dave write something but I generally will never deliver it but I'll definitely have a lot to do with what goes into what we deliver. I think the team between Nat and I and always been is I've always been a lot more, I suppose, conceptual and strategic in the way that I approach everything. 
and Nat's always been a lot more tactical and functional in other words, these are the steps we have to do. So we can both do each other's, I suppose, jobs, mm. but Nat's just 10 times better at that execution. You know, execution than I am. I can execute, but I'm much better in the what if space, what's next space, how do we communicate this, thinking about that, joining the dots between different disparate data. That's my wheelhouse really. That's where I'm, I'm naturally, my mind sits. Mm-hmm. And that's why we sort of as a, I suppose, both as husband and wife but also as business partners for how long? How do we work it out? How many years? 25. 25 years. Nearly 26. Um, we don't really tread on each other's toes. It's because we've learned not to step into each other's wheelhouses and you know, I, unless asked. Really. My, my biggest thing with Dave, I always go, if you start stepping into my wheelhouse and you start, you know, sending a different message, I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> and so then he very quickly like... <laughs> Steps away. Yeah, but I don't think it's any di- different to all of our customers. They're, they're, you know, they're all the same. And really, you know, mm. all our customers have a have a very similarish very type of relationship. Often, you know, the, this husband and wife team in in well, in a lot of cases, I suppose. And I think that's what well, what I'm keen to flesh out with both of you today is this piece for for agricultural farming businesses that husband wife combination is actually very common but when it comes to as soon as you step outside the farm gate it's kind of like and I know when we were chatting I was like oh like I knew you were a co-CEO but then I was like oh and that's your wife yeah. it's um mm. I think it's funny like how quickly it's normal in the farming partnerships but when it comes to say agribusiness it's like oh it's a little yeah. bit unusual so let's Unpack it. Yeah. <laughs> well, our, our friends in the city. So probably the biggest thing. So we met in the country. I was farming. Nat was um, the local site manager at Westpac, managing the branch there. And we come from farm backgrounds ourselves. And so this idea of working in a, in a business together wasn't considered to be even – We didn't. Have, it didn't even cross our minds, to be quite honest. It's just but, normal. To our friends, when we moved to Perth, you're suddenly surrounded by a whole cohort of friends that you make here or any city that half of them have never stepped on a farm, don't know anything about agriculture. They all do these really amazing, you know, they could be property developers or surgeons or, you know, cabinet makers. It doesn't, you know, like. I'm going to say the M word here. Mining people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are in Perth, aren't yeah. we? Like it's kind of like. Yeah, they were, what do you do? I'm in oil and gas. Oh, I'm in mining. <laughs> what do you do? I'm in finance. What do you do? Oh, I work with oil and gas and mining. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, that's Perth. So, yeah, so, but to them it was kind of like, I could never do that. That's the, that's the immediate result. I'd never do that. If I worked with my wife or husband, I'd kill them. Mm. But go, I think what they don't realise, though, the more you actually work together, the more deeply you understand each other's strengths and weaknesses and you actually respect each other more it, you know like you have to you can't both be peacocks if you're working together like it's really nice that you have a different personality because mm. I think that's obviously the only way that it works but yeah you just you do very quickly realize what each other's strengths and weaknesses are and then if you you know brave enough to run with that and trust the other person then it, it actually can work beautifully and I think that's what it goes to. that's probably a great word for it, it's trust you have to you know, we throw these words around, but when you are both husband and wife and business partners, there is no, if you don't trust, it can go horribly wrong in every particular way. So mm. you have to trust. Humility is, you have to learn that really quick. Mm. You have to be really blunt about, I can't do this or I can do that or whatever. You have to almost draw these imaginary lines. And also have the confidence to call bullshit on each other, right? Otherwise, both everything again it goes wrong if you can't call each other out. Yeah. So we sort of, in a funny way, it improves both the work relationship and your personal relationship having to go through that because you can't sort of just hide that ugly stuff away. Yeah. It, you have to address it every day. Yeah. You have to be brave enough to ask for help if you're drowning. Yeah. In your work. Yeah, I think I'd actually like our kids to do it. I mean, we've got three boys and I'd like them to do the same thing because I think I like the idea of you as a couple building something together. 
Mm. Right. And I think that's the one thing farming, I hope it has, and I hope it still keeps, is this idea that you go out there and you got nothing, which is, I mean, that was the advantage when people used to get married a lot younger. They had nothing. So anything they had was together. Yeah. Right. And so you'd build this thing together. And so building a business together, building a farm together, I think it's actually good for people's relationship rather than bad. It's yeah. just unusual in an urban context. Absolutely. So I just want to jump back a little bit to understand mm-hmm. a little bit about both of you, kind mm-hmm. of pre all of this, and then I think we'll chat about the business. But Nat, I'm keen to understand for you, like what are those early influences of agriculture in your life? And if you think of happy memories around agriculture, what could you trace it back to? Well, I mean, I was like Dave. I grew up in farming and, you know, I was like a normal farm kid. I worked around the farm. I went to high school and then uh, when I finished high school, I left and I went to Perth and I got into banking and that's pretty much how I ended up in Up after 10 years. Um, I ended up as a site manager and that's actually how I met Dave. So even in all my career in banking, I probably only spent two or three years in the city. The rest of it was all with ag. So I, I kind of never went far from it. Although I say that, and I was very determined I was never going to marry a farmer and ended up marrying one. (laughs) But, you know, yeah. And so then Dave and I got married. But as we got married, the bank closed. So then I was out of employment. And then that's pretty much how this next chapter came about. So I um, started a professional training company in the use of AgriMaster and desktop banking. And so that company was called Nuju, which is one of the names of, you know, the rooms in, in the office. And, yeah, I started a national training company teaching farmers how to use AgriMaster and desktop banking back then. And also we had some great alliances with places like CBH teaching uh, farmers how to use the internet. So, yeah, that's kind yeah, of really my segue into what we're doing today. Yeah, and the thing about it, like you travel around, and I think this is when, when early staff members come in and you travel anywhere, Nat knows everyone. And I think this is the, apart from that's your superpower, but also that because you wanted to earn extra money all the time, so you always accepted jobs as site managers on all the different obscure country yeah. towns. On and relief stuff. Do relief stuff. So you go to a town, oh, you used to work in that town. <laughs> and I used to play netball in that town. And it's like... And so it's quite amazing. I, I mean, in Cojunup, Nat was in Cojunup for how many, three years and, and I was there my whole life and she knew twice as many people as I did. <laughs> but, yeah, and funny enough, like, although Nat did this full circle, we ended up, and you ended up in Cojunup, which is literally only 40 k's from the town, uh, from the farm that she grew up in. It's amazing. Yeah. And what about for you? Because were you farming at the time when you two met? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was... I mean, my life was pretty, what do you call it, standard farm boy up to that point. Like, so I went to, got sent to Perth, went to boarding school, um, went traveling in England, came back, went to university. I did a bachelor of business at uh, Muresk when it was a big deal back then. And then just went home to the farm. I, I toyed with this idea of working in farm consulting because I, in my third year of uni, I worked for Plan Farm and I really loved that type of work. But eventually I decided I'd go back and go back to the farm. And so I was really lucky. So that was when I was about 22. And I was lucky because my father wanted to do other things, which was write software. Pretty much from 22, I got a free reign. And so I was able to change the farm and and, and really have my head a lot. And then when my brother came home from Marcus Olden about three years later, or two years later, two, three years later, it was really where he, my father allowed us to run it as our show. So from sort of 92 to 2000, I was always, that's all I was ever going to do was farm, right? I had no, I didn't even think about doing what we do now. I hadn't even considered it as an as a option. I've literally just had an epiphany. I reckon I saw maybe your brother speak in Canberra a few years ago and if it was him he was talking about, it was at a conference for the Australian Farm Institute and he was talking about, I guess, animal welfare and that just mm. how cruel nature can be. Yeah. And he told a story about what the role of farming is around keeping animals alive, making sure they're happy and healthy, but he 
gave this analogy of he was watching a, a magpie one day fly, I think it was your brother, fly from its nest for the first time and it took off and it was flying away, flying away, and then it fell into the dam. Yeah. And he was saying, like, this is the thing of nature. Like nature's a cruel cruel beast when it's actually out out there. Yeah, that would be my brother because he does speak at a lot of conferences, especially around Nuffield, which are yep. – because he was a Nuffield scholar I don't know how many years ago and and he's on the board of RSPCA for a while. I don't know if he still is. And, and But even him, he was this um, – what do you go? The, he, I said, why did you join the board of RSPCA? And he goes, well, they're talking about us without us having a seat at the table. So – how about they talk about us when we have a seat at the table? So it was really, yeah. So he's, you would have seen him at a conference, definitely. Well, there you go. So tell me about the, your, your dad was very keen on writing software. That decision, was it when your brother came home that you decided to move away from the family No, farm? so um, I suppose my, uh, although I said I was very typical of most farming um, lads, I, I didn't grow up in a typical household. So my father, um, we, we had a pretty nerdy family. Um, and my dad was a really keen, he was farming, but he was also an, a really keen amateur photographer. So he had a dark room and he studied different things. And his father was involved in a ton of research. And so when my father got his block down in Mobrup, south of Kojinup, and was started clearing land, his father, and so he was gone out in his own sort of thing, so with his bush block, he introduced him to a few researchers at the University of Western Australia and he enrolled in this thing called the Farm Management Services Laboratory. It literally was a farm economics unit. So he had computerised cash flow forecasts and bookkeeping since 1967, doing all of his finances through the computer at the UWA as an experimental farmer. They used to have really established farmers and then one's clearing land like him and they were studying them and performing. So he had these computerised records. So he got really, because he was a nerdy guy, he just got super keen on this computer thing. And then in the late 70s, he saved up and eventually in 1980 bought himself a computer and a printer, which cost four grand in 1980. So it's like going and spending 20 grand on or so on a computer now. And he wrote what became Agrimaster because he wanted to write something and he thought, oh, I reckon I can do that. <laughs> it was He didn't have this big, I think there's this massive problem. And, you know, like you think in startups now, okay, um, you know, we've got to do um, product market fit and we've got to do this and we've got to make sure that, no, nah, he just goes, it seems like a cool idea and I think I'll just write this bit of software. And it was just a hobby. So right up until I came home in 1992, he just wrote it at night after the farm. So that's what he did. And it was just his nerd. And so we'd be drenching sheep and he'd just stop and he'd go, oh, I've just worked something out. And he'd been writing code in his head. And then he'd go home at lunchtime and he'd wash up, take his boots off and go into the office and start writing it down on his computer because he just worked out how to solve a particular coding problem. So was his true passion the software side, do you think? Still is. He's like he's 81 this year, as you know. Yeah, 81. Yeah. And he's just learnt to write in a new set of codes and he's writing a new website for both the Bowls Club and the Rotary Club. He's very busy. We have to book um, him to see him. Yeah, you can't get Does old. he come in here much? No. No, not really. He's no. allowed in. No, he can. He'd tear the place apart. He's not apart. interested. He's not interested. He's so not interested. And, and the other thing, he built a really successful farm business, but this software business, he was never interested in the business of software. He loved writing it. Like it was like a... Even now, it's a hobby. Now he, when he like when you when he walked in the office today, when he walked into the office for this office for the first time, it's the only time I've ever seen my dad cry ever. He was just overwhelmed by with the emotion of how, how did this hobby of his that he had no intention of it being a business become what it is today. And I think because the thing is, he was so proud that because it was it's really quite funny how how it all came about. So when when we got married, that was ninety seven. And I'd done some work with Kent before we got married just because desktop banking was such a big thing, integrating it into Agrimaster. And I don't know, but it just naturally kind of started from there where I started. And then it sort of just ran its natural course, didn't mm. it, where I started this national training company, had staff all across Australia. And then he was kind of like going, oh, I don't know how much longer he wanted to do it for. And we just sort of like went, well, do you buy more farms or do we? Yeah, so we were right at that point. So I met Nat while my brother and I and Dad were buying another farm. So everyone thinks I married my bank manager to get a farm. But <laughs> 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 but 
Might be a few people taking some ideas here. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's not the reason. Yeah, everyone, good tip. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Except she used, not to, she used to ring me up all the time and goes, I'm going to bounce your check today. Put you, some you money put in, some in money your in account. Your account? <laughs> You're on the reports again. <laughs> so it's really handy having your girlfriend ring you up before you get your checks bounced. It, you weren't special. We used to do it for everyone. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that ruined that story. Okay. Yeah. So, well, well so yeah. So I want to know you, you've, your dad's created this bit of software yeah. that has then evolved in. So I'm curious to know that, that point of opportunity when it came to yeah, leaving. Yeah. So the opportunity. So Nat started this training company and it started getting busy. And look, Nat and I were newly married and we decided, okay, we want to have a family. And this training company had become a bit of a thing and we decided okay what do we do how do we have a family and keep this company so we decided okay the only way to do that is it has to transcend us a bit and it was have to have staff and things like that so we said okay i will stop farming two days a week and help build this business up and we hired another person on the farm to help do the stuff that i was supposed to be doing to help my brother and then it started going really well. We ended up having seven part-time staff around Australia. We ended up becoming the big, and this, my father's software at that point was being sold through another reseller because he, like I was saying, he wasn't interested in the business stuff. He just wanted someone else to do that stuff. And so because of the agreement, we had to have a distribution agreement through my father's reseller to, to sell his software to our clients. Anyway, so eventually we went up to him and he goes, look, this is a bit silly. So Nat and I went to him and goes, look, I reckon we could merge this training company of ours together and bring in all your software and then put it all together and then we could probably hire professional software writers to start taking over your role because you're not, you don't really want to keep going. And also the, all the clients and the accounting and consulting partners were worried about that too because Dad would have been, what, in his 60s by that point? Yeah. And so they were worried, okay, we're all reliant on this software and this old farmer in Kojunk writing it. Yeah. What's happening? So he was like 59 or something. Yeah. So it took a bit of convincing, but eventually he said, oh, right. he had no faith in us at, at all. Mm-hmm. He told, what did he say? He said, oh, can you go and learn how to fix computers? Because you're probably not going to have enough clients to pay someone to be able to do it for you. <laughs> and so tell me about that, that first staff member that you guys hired. Who, like, not necessarily <laughs> who was it, but why, what were their skill set and why did you hire them? Um, when what when we actually merged all the companies? Yeah, when it all started to oh, poor, move. Poor, Paula, Paula, God. poor Paula. We had to do it twice, so we had all these part-time staff in because we co- were operating from the farm. Yeah. So the training company was all fully professional set up from the farm, but you know we had a six-month-old child. We couldn't keep driving up and down the highway, so we had to make that decision: do we stay trying to do it from the farm, or do we move to Perth? So we moved to Perth, and we had to wind the training company down, and then we had to start the next one. So start Agrimaster sort of as it is today, we were running sort of both at the same time and there was this six-month period where we had to have both companies running before they became one. And so we had seven staff, one full-time, Julie, mm-hmm. in Kojanup, and off the farm. So if you imagine what our business looked like on the farm, we had this little wooden cottage with four rooms and three of the rooms, including our lounge room, were offices and and so, and then we had uh, this optic fibre cable, believe it or not, dug with a with a um, you know the stuff that you lay poly pipe with behind the truck. So we we got a poly pipe digger and laid this optic fibre up to the sheds, and we put a transportable in the sheds. And so we had other staff there, and it was chaotic. And then we moved to Perth, and we didn't have a office space yet, so we. Bought our little, our, another little wooden cottage in Shenton Park, which again was smaller than our farm one. And at the back, it had this potting shed with laid um, recycled brick floor. So I went to Bunnings and we put masonite on the brick floor and bought a bunch of those plastic, back when plastic garden furniture was a big deal. And they became our office. Trendy. They were like cool at the time. <laughs> And we got the we uh, well, before we got settlement on the house, we got permission from the current owner to run four phone lines to this potting shed, and we had a bunch of those old Telstra phone lines in the potting shed. And poor Paula, <laughs> she got how the hell why she took that job I don't know. Anyway, she ended up getting working for us, sitting in this potting shed on a garden chair with these four manual phones. It wasn't even a switch phone. They're all separate phones. Oh my god. We interviewed her in that office though. Like so she no knew what she was that. getting into. 
god, I don't know. Um, we ran it there for six months because at that stage we didn't have the rights back. That was sort of like, I don't know, in the June. And we didn't take the Agrimaster uh, rights over to distribute until the January because the other companies still had the distribution rights. So we had to stay getting ready to start the new Agrimaster company as it is today, running our training company as it was then. And then basically in the January, we moved into offices and so did Paula. And that's when we started employing more staff. Yeah. But up to then it was like, and um, bootstrapping everything. Yeah, bootstrapping everything. And, we, and, us, and when we moved, the, the month, the weekend we moved up to the farm, so we got friends with all their horse trucks and horse floats and we carted our house and office up. And our poor neighbours, they thought, who the hell's turned up? So all our, our little tiny street in Shannon Park with all these trucks pulling up. And Harrison was four months old. So our eldest son now, who's 22, so he was a four-month-old baby at the time. So while doing all this. And our first officers ended up being in our same street of our house. So I was getting my hair cut at the shops at the end of the street. And the and the lady said, oh, she just met a new guy and she was um, heading off to Europe. And I said, well, what are you doing with your place? And she goes, oh, I don't know. I've still got a year left on my lease. And I go, can I have it? <laughs> and so we ended up renting her hairdresser's shop and refitting it out. And that became our first office. And so it was literally 100 metres from our house. Oh my god! So, it so it was like the most bizarre story where just like these things. It keep was a happening. real startup. Everyone looks at you know Agrimas and think, oh, you know it's forever. It's quite like, a nice office today. Yeah, it's no potting shed. Yeah. <laughs> but and then our first after Paula, we and our next two staff, Ruth and Nola, and they both went for the same job, and we hired Ruth, who stayed with us for sixteen years. Um, not quite. Fifteen. Yeah. Mm. Anyway. And she was our second employee in Perth. And then we interviewed Nola. This we had no money. Like literally we'd borrowed everything. And we interviewed Nola and we just really liked her. And she and so we didn't offer her this job, but we go, God, we so like her. We should offer her a job as well. <laughs> so we just made this job up for Nola and, and hired her as well. And she for about four or five years was like our mum. She just she ran amazing. the whole operation for us. She was amazing. Because how were you guys going? Like it was a new business at this stage. Mm. How did you split into like what was your role, Nat, versus yours, Dave, and then what was the rest of the team doing? Because I think, or, and this is one thing I wonder, like in our, in our little business at Humans Vag, like how do you give stability when there is actually so much uncertainty in the sense of it's growing, evolving, mm. and what you sign up for Well, six I think because we already had run a really successful training company for a period. So we kind of from day one had our definite roles that we had. So like, I was still very involved in writing training product and training customers as well as doing, you know, the finance side mm -hmm. and operational. And so, you know, we had very definite roles whereas and Dave was pretty much doing what he is today plus a lot more. Yeah. A lot so more grunty a lo work. <laughs> a lot more of that sales, marketing, you know, helping out with the software team. I'm not a software developer. Apart you know, from that, cutting code, we've done every job in this yeah, company. Yeah, and, and that's what I said. So that's what I said. Whenever we hire someone, I go, I've done your job. <laughs> you know, and, that, and that's the reality of every someone starting up a company. Mm. You hire someone, you go, I remember when I used to do that job, right, because you've done it. But to answer your question a bit more, I always say that first year of our business was a siege mentality. So you weren't offering stability. It's like I think it's the excitement that people do when they join startups. There is no stability, right? It's just chaotic excitement, right? So our days were literally they were like because maybe we, we were excited about doing it and exhausted and terrified and all the normal emotions about having a young business. But it was like, hey, guys, if we get another 100 clients – we can afford carpet. And that was the exciting thing of the month. We get carpet this month, right? And then if we get another 300 clients, everyone gets a real chair. <laughs> you can get rid of your garden chair, your plastic chair. Oh, but, my and, God. And then it was like, okay, if we hit 1,000 clients, we paint the office. It, it was But we're doing it ourselves. We can just afford the paint. Yeah. <laughs> and, and but the thing is people got around that, you know, so you but you get a one hit at that really, mm. you know, that whole – and the idea is 
We just had to have enough. So most of our time, every night, we'd go home to our little house, our little lean-to kitchen. And I always say you don't know you've started a small business um, until you've been in the fetal position at least once a month, right? Mm. <laughs> okay. And most of it was like, how are we going to make payroll this week? So we didn't pay ourselves for a long time. We lived on savings. We just Lucky lived, we had we savings. We sold a car. <laughs> we'd done a bunch of other stuff. We'd borrowed some money and we just lived on those savings. Probably uh, took 12 months. Yeah. In the, like in the new world once we took over Agromaster. But, but there again, we actually used our product. We had budgets. We had cash flow projections. We knew exactly what we had to achieve. Yeah. Because we'd already set those, you know, we had our strategy, we had our budgets in place. So we just had to like keep our eye on the game and just go for it and but, back and, ourselves. And we had some good luck and some people in the ag industry really helped us. So I remember going to Louis, he used to be the head of the Condian Group, and I said, um, and we were struggling to get hold of all the Agrimaster customers around Australia. So we had a bit of a database issue and a whole lot of stuff. And at that time, the Continent Group had to about 26,000 members around Australia. So I went and saw and this is the, the, the brave stuff you do when you just need your business to work. And so, oh, you know, we were these nobodies really from Kojanapa would come up and I, and I go, okay, I'm going to get an appointment with the CEO of the Continent Group and I'm going to ask him a favour. And so <laughs> I went to Louis and I said, and, and that, well, I think we both, I can't remember if we both went or I went and... I went to Louis and I go, I need to contact all our customers around Australia. I want to write a letter to them and telling them about the new business and what we're doing and the new distribution and everything. Can you put it in your magazine next month for me? And he goes, yeah, sure. He goes, you pay for the printing of the letter and I'll get it inserted into the magazine. So we got this open letter to all our customers in Australia inserted into 26,000 magazines. We went from about 200 customers to over 3,000 in eight months from that. And another sales guy from the farm weekly rang us up and he just rang us up because he was desperate to, he'd lost a front page. And he rang us up and he goes, do you want to buy a front page? He was just ringing up everyone in ag. Mm. And I said, how much? He goes, three grand. And three grand to us was like. So much money. It was just an immense amount of money. And we just said, we'll have it. <laughs> We had to buy a second fax machine to cope yeah. with all the like customers and, that were signing and up. And so we just took this really? picture. It of, worked. And so we just took this picture of just us and our few little staff and everything, and put, it's still it's actually somewhere here. And put that picture on the front of the Farm Weekly to say, "This is our company. This is what we do." And that plus Louis's letter together, yeah, we had to buy. We had to get another changer. line put in. We had to buy another fax machine. You know, two fax machines running with the amount of subscriptions coming through. It was just and yeah. It was two bits of luck that meant we went from failing to that. So just for for people who aren't aware, in layman's terms, what is the product that you guys were offering back then? So Agrimaster, it, the product itself has been around for forty years. Last year, so. So Agrimaster uh, it still is today very much the same. The problem it solves is very much the same. So it's a farm financial management package, which means it's management accounting that does tax plus really industry-leading cash flow forecasting, modelling, et cetera. So I'm very niche, very focused on ag. And at that time, it was, a, I suppose, a bit of a younger product than it is now. But at that time, what we were offering was training and support. So we'd started up this new company and there's always three elements to this. And we, at the moment, Nat calls CS team. We call them the, the customer success team. So that's everything from once you buy software, you've got to be onboarded. You have to learn how to use it. You have to be supported in it. And so we had, that's what when we joined those three companies together, my father's software writing our support we had a support team and we had and the training team which is really the brainchild of nat together so at that time what we were selling was support and training because mm -hmm. we hadn't yet rewritten the software and so we were selling selling support to the existing product that was out in the market already we were selling essentially improved support so people didn't have to buy this because they already had product it's not like subscription is these days yeah yeah so it they was literally a desktop system mm. and you guys were giving people the support they needed to actually work through how do they actually 
Yeah, so okay. what we were selling through these fax machines, etc., was improved software that our team had started writing. It was membership, basically. Membership. So we're selling them a membership, and as part of that membership, you got support from our team, mm -hmm. and you got the new updates as we wrote them. Gotcha. So okay. that's what we were selling. So, yeah, God, it was, yeah, it was hard. <laughs> At what point did you guys realise that it was actually going from startup idea to being a real business? Definitely within the first 12 months. We got to the end of the first 12 months and I think we had 1,000. No, no. More 2,000 on board. 3,000 customers by the end of 12 months. And we, look, I think we had. It all happened quite quickly. I think quickly. we it happened really quickly. I think by the first year and a half, I think by the time we hit about 12 staff members and we, we were starting to squeeze out of our little 90 square meter uh, you know, hairdressing salon. <laughs> um, <laughs> we had to move. We had to move. <laughs> But then we again, moved over the road. So did you? Really? Yeah. So literally, didn't want to go too far. So from literally, home. we did. We ended up with twelve <laughs> people in this ninety square meters, and it was. It, I mean, we loved it, but looking back on it, it was pretty bloody awful. And this Gates and Parts warehouse across the road were told they had to move out of Shetton Park because they didn't want trucks in these. You know, because uh, Shetton Park's like a lot of inner city suburbs. It was. Um, it, 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 it had moved on in its day, so it used to be a bit of mix of everything. Yep. So anyway, so we went across and we just rented this warehouse literally, we're talking like 10 metres from our office. Right? Can get the woolly shopping trolleys to move yeah. everything? Well, that's the biggest problem. When you move, you can't get a truck or move. It's literally you have to carry everything across the road. Oh. We didn't have that much at that stage, so it was actually all right. Yeah. When we went to move again, that was like. That was huge. But, yeah, so we're lucky enough. So. We never stayed more than a couple of hundred metres from the house probably for, I don't know. 17 years. 17 years. So, oh, my God. So but the advantage from that. Actually, my sister, that, 18. 18. So yeah. the advantage to that is one of the things I loved about the farm, and I always wanted the farm, and you grow up on a farm, one of the things is you go home and you, your mum and dad are just there. You get off the bus, they're there, and your mum goes, oh, your dad's up at the sheds, and you, you ride your bike up the sheds. And, and I thought, oh, God, our kids aren't going to have that. But they got that. They would, our school was 200 metres from our office, um, 100 metres from our house. So literally we'd be in a meeting with the team and I'd go, we've got to go to assembly. And we'd literally walk down the stairs, walk 200 metres, go to our, our boys' assembly and then come back to the office. It was perfect. And so, and they could run up and see us after work or we can go down to the thing. And so my sister called it our little golden triangle. Yeah, it's and, amazing. But so we didn't really move into this nice new office until literally our boys were, well, Fergus was year nine or ten. Yeah. yeah. So our boys were able to grow up and we didn't, never really missed out. And even and like when out. like every time we had another child, the child virtually grew up in the training room. Like they'd sleep in the tra – like because we were always working in there and until they could run around, they came to work. Yeah, and so they and they see. I mean, our eldest son, he goes, he says, I see our offices as much as my home as my home. It is really weird. So when we moved offices, he was really. It's like he was moving. He like yeah. mum and dad had sold the family home, and I go, no, we're just leasing another office because he grew up in there in a plane pen and was running around and mm. like it's it's weird. But that's no different to a farm kid. Very so, similar so, to so it's mm. a very different experience. It's so cool. Mm. Yeah, but I always say our kids didn't grow up on the farm, but they grew up in a very similar culture. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and also very, like it would be very special for your staff, and you'd build a certain type of culture by being able to make sure that you guys aren't missing the athletics days or whatever yeah. it is. You're actually there and prioritising the family side yep. while building a business. Well, I think that's really important for any other, not just our, I'd say that's just, I'd, I'd encourage anyone to prioritise that regardless. You know, like, for example, we have this rule, when you go on holidays, you can't be contacted. We can't be contacted. You can't, if you, I don't care if you're the head of whatever team. No one's allowed to contact you and I'm allowed to contact the office. Someone can always solve the problem. I think we are talking on the phone. I said it's never that urgent. I think. Uh, I was Have you always had that philosophy that? Yep. Always. Really? Yep. yep. Been able to separate it? Yep. Right? Yeah, wow. Yeah, so when, when we go on holidays, you cannot talk to us ever. Even now, Ruth, my offsider, I was actually just planning with her then. You know, like we're going away in January. What are all the things that we need to line up now in order for me not to be contacted? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's always about planning. And not only that, there's a couple of things. Trust in the people you've got. Hmm. And secondly, it's never that urgent, ever. I mean, I was being a bit flippant on the phone the other day, but it's really not. It's, you know, like, for example, if the building's on fire, 
Call the Call fire brigade. brigade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what Get am I out do quickly. Yeah. What am I going to do? If, if a customer's got a problem, you're actually the custom problem solver. You ring me and I'm just going to get stressed about something that I'm asking and going to ask you to solve anyway. Yeah, and right? that's, that's one of our things that we always laugh about. Sometimes we all have angry customers from time to time and they want to speak to someone higher up the chain. And I always giggle. They always want to speak to Dave. Yeah, and I go, yeah. oh, he's really not the person to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone it. wants to complain about, you know, it's not working in the product, they probably should talk to me. But they don't even need to talk to me because you know what? Drove and the customer success gang, they're phenomenal. They, that, that's they their, absolutely, that's, that's their wheelhouse. They know 100% what to do. And I think yeah. that's one of the other things. Is and we spend a lot of time mentoring them. Yeah. So because the fact that we're not here all the time and that's actually not good for customers if we don't have other people to look after them. So, yeah. But, I, I, you know, we grew up probably with different types of um, farming families, but mine was... My father was like that. He was like, we used to, even as farmers, we used to go on holidays for a month a year and he literally used to lock the gate for a month, right, and just go and he'd go to the beach, go sailing, do other stuff. And he used to drive back once a week and he used to drive around the sheep, make sure everything was all good. Yeah. That was it. And weekends, never worked on the weekends on a farm, right? So he was like, because he was the same thing. He goes, this time you can't, and we've both really subscribed to that philosophy. You cannot be good at your work if your personal life is not under control. That means you you need downtime, you need headspace, you need time to do that stuff. Otherwise, you can. What happens is otherwise you're at work thinking about that stuff, mm. which means you're not really at work. Yeah, you know, you you're doing it. You split. You have to split that time anyway. Yeah, you might as well do it properly. Yeah, it's really important. One thing, I'd, and we chatted about it a little bit, Dave, I don't know if you if you want to talk about it at all, but you guys have been through an event recently which has probably really shaped but also reinforced that with your son's health mm. as well. I love that you guys talk about that, I call it balance, whatever, just the boundaries actually more than balance, boundaries mm-hmm. between work mm-hmm. and life and whatnot. But you shared a story about trekking Kokoda with, was it with your sons? Yeah, yeah. So... I'll have to go back to this beginning to make it a bit more sense. So yeah. Nat, for my what birthday? I can't remember. 40th. 40th. So I always wanted to trek Kokoda. So for my 40th birthday present, she bought me, I don't know, what do you call it, the fee or whatever to, to, to trek Kokoda. So I eventually did it when I was 45, I think, eventually. So, so is that, <laughs> too, many, too many holidays booked that you could. <laughs> I didn't even know what got in the way. Anyway, so by, by 45, anyway, and I went with Adventure Kokoda and they were brilliant. Anyway, so on that trek, that first trek I did, there were four teenagers who were, had been supported to be there. So they'd come from um, difficult backgrounds and they'd been sponsored to be there. And so you could see they were a bit insular, a bit angry and everything when they got there. Anyway, through the 10 days we were on the track, I saw them just blossom as just humans, really. And I thought, that's my biggest memory from the whole track, apart from the fact that it's do it, it's the most amazing trek you'll ever do. But that experience of watching those teenagers just come alive from such a low point as well. But then there was other guys on there that were doing it with their sons. Yeah, and there was another... Dad, an auditor from Sydney, he was doing it with his son. And I was going, oh, this is great. And our kids were a bit little at the time. So I came home to Nat and I go, Nat, every time one of our boys turns 16, I'm trekking Kokoda with them. Huh. And, and, <laughs> I've got lots of holidays stashed up for yeah. myself. <laughs> and do you know what? Oh, it's not a cheap exercise. <laughs> anyway, oh. so, when, so what happens is every time it's coming up, you know, you get, there's a lot of training and a whole lot. So, but what I love about it is each of our boys, it's the training. You know, you've got to train to go. And so it's all that process and they know, so they're thinking about it. And it's just an amazing experience to do with the boys. So I'd obviously done it with the two older boys. So this was track number four with Fergus. So track number four didn't go to plan. <laughs> so it was pretty normal. Fergus and I were training, we're in the hills every weekend, we're doing everything and he was a bit clumsy and I thought, oh, he's a teenager. Anyway, so we flew over to PNG. It was an absolute um, mess up with flights and a whole lot of stuff was going wrong. Anyway, we got up the next morning, about to head to Owa's Corner to start trekking. He starts throwing up and I go, oh, no, he's, got, he's drunk something. 
You know, we weren't PNG. Everything wants to kill you. Like it's just <laughs> like, you know, you, it's going to be a bacteria or it's going to be a worm or, you know, it's the tropics. It's, you know, your medical case is bigger than everything else in your pack. Anyway, so gave him an anti-nausea tablet, see how he goes. We started walking the first day from Owa's Corner across the Goldie River to Itama Ridge campsite and he was walking like he was drunk. Right, and I said, "You're right, mate. Yeah, I'm fine." <laughs> like you look at him, you're not fine, dude. And he goes, "How are you?" And he goes, "Oh, it's a bit weird. I can see three of everything." All right, this is not good. So we thought he was overheating, so we were stripping him down and actually soaking him in the cold rivers in the jungle, and just thought he was overheating because there was a couple of other people who were in heat stroke. Anyway, got to the first camp, and yeah, and so. To make it a much shorter story, he couldn't walk properly. He got up the next morning, was still sick, couldn't walk properly, and we decided to pull out and pull it and walk him back. Got back to the Port Moresby Hospital and eventually, through a whole lot of drama and everything, eventually convinced them to do a scan on him and found he had a five-centimetre tumour in his head. So then within three days, we're in a medivac jet back to Australia and two days later, he was having a brain tumour removed from his brain at Perth Children's Hospital. So it was not the adventure we'd trained for. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. So, yeah, he's now, what, into his... Starts chemo start, again tomorrow. Yes. But yeah, tomorrow well. he goes in for his second round of chemo, but he's in good spirits and he... We've just, like, come off the back of four months in PCH. So pretty much we've had to, like, coordinate... So how old, He's 16 now. 16. 16, yeah. Yep. So year 10. 11. Year 11. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we've had to pull him out of so he's lost year 11. 11. So yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So the, for the last, you know, four months, we've just been going day about in PCH. Like we sleep there overnight and that's where we run business from. So, you know, you attend to him and all the appointments that have to happen. But if you're on roster, then, you know, you're just working from PCH. Yes. Yeah, so and one's in here and... And so that's really how we've been running the business. So since April 20, I think, April 20, when he went under mm-hmm. the operation. So we've just been rotating between one person at work, one person in the hospital for since April. So, yeah. And, and look, we've got amazing have, staff. And like, the team have just been, been amazing. And, and I think that's the thing. So I was talking to you about how we run the business and mm. we run it with the team, have a, have a lot of a, autonomy so we, we meet with them once a week. We have shared objectives and key results or OKRs and everyone knows what they've got to do and we check in and we're there when we're when needed and available. But the advantage of that system has really come home when we're in this situation. So Nat and I, I mean, I, some, I think the staff would want us to be a bit more involved sometimes. But so generally we try to work when we're in the hospital, but, you know, it's the hospital, you're interrupted all the time. You've got doctors and nurses and mm. You know, so, yeah, but the, you know, I think it's not perfect, but the business has run really well in the meantime, and although we're going through really this really big moment. Leads. So we work very closely with them, like Dave was saying, but ultimately all of our staff can reach out to us on Teams and yeah. they're not scared to, nor should they be. But, like, do you know what I mean? We all work very collaboratively together. Yeah. So... I think, and that's what I say, like I'll say to, you know, um, Vion or Dhruv or, or any of them and say, okay, if you need, like if Nat, say Nat's in the office and I'm in the hospital, vice versa, I said, just whack it on Teams and if I can get to it today, I will, right? And that's pretty much it is because some days you're doing the whole thing and you can't get to it. like, Or if because- it's really urgent, send me a text yeah. because I can't actually get to my phone and see, I don't have Teams on my phone. <laughs> That's part of your work boundaries? Yeah, because I actually have no control. Like if I don't have work emails or teams on my phone because I actually don't know how to stop. She just relies on me. So goes, can you no, get out your phone and reply to that? <laughs> yeah, because you're really good at boundaries, whereas I, like if it's there, if it's pinging, I'll talk to it. Yeah. So I and just. I think that's the other difference is um, we're so different with work boundaries. So I have this ability, which Nat hates, to go home and just, Done. Like, you know, home, work, I'll just go to my workshop and now I'll go get out of your workshop. But Nat, never, you've never had that ability, have you? Like, you, No, because I'm you, always thinking about it. You're always on. I think that's because it's my role. It's like it's always Because every time goes, I'll retire one day and all her friends laugh 
Because <laughs> she only has two gears. It's like flat out or asleep. Fair. Oh. Yeah. So are you the kind of person who when you have like your time off, you literally make no plans just because the rest of your life is so structured and planned? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. It depends if I'm booking a holiday. Like I like to be very organised to get there. And, yes, when I'm there, actually I become so vague, Don't I just go with the flow. In oh, fact, yeah. sometimes we've been on holidays and people have organised stuff with us and they've rocked up to our door and I've been in my pyjamas going, oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> oh and God, we had that. We? Oh, that was so. Anyway, so, yeah. But yeah, that, I think that is your thing, isn't it? But so, if you want Nat to relax, we have to go away. Yep. Which right? is why I can't be contacted. Yeah, which is actually really cool. Yeah. So, but if we do go away, Nat's just like hundred percent off. That's good, right? So, but if she's in her home or our home or in our business, but on. that's because when I'm on, it's all about planning, and you know. Nightmares do happen and things go wrong, but you can always get them back on track. Yeah. Because, you know, assess it, you know, replan, go again. But I think, you know, going back to the the farmers who who might be listening, is that I think this is really important that this this sort of role, this keeping each other accountable for different stuff. And often your partner hopefully is gonna be different, you know, mm. and that's good. Because you might be a Nat or you might be a David or you might be an Ollie, you might be something. And someone's got to go, okay, that's good to a point, but this is the point. Right? Yeah, well, there's always weaknesses, isn't there? And you don't so. and you don't want to box people in for roles, but we do generally find that it's the ladies who are championing like what I do, you know, and they take charge and that's their wheelhouse. Yeah. Whether they want to be in that or they just fall into it or it just gets whatever the reason is. Yeah, so... We are very similar to our customers. And I think the, and people downplay their roles. So there's this stereotype in ag and I think it runs true most of the time. Guys are often, I always joke to everyone that us guys are just the workmen of ag now, is that ag's run by all the girls, right? Mm. And if someone rings up our, this place, turns up to a training day, more than 90% would be female. Mm. Always, right? So anything to do, you go to a business function anywhere, most of the crowd's female. Yeah. Right? So it's not like in the urban, if you go to a business function in the city, it's all guys. Yeah. Right? But this small little table of girls or one on, you know, it's rare. In act, completely opposite, right? And it's moved very quickly that way, mm. like it yeah. feels. And it's gone. And proactive and asking the tough questions. If I go to some function somewhere, mm. the tough questions are from the ladies in the audience. The tough business questions are always there. And, and so we always say that is, that is the business audience that we are writing for and talking to now, right? <laughs> Except budgeting can be different, can't it? But I think what we find is we want those people, especially let's say in this stereotypical case, the, the females, to own that. That's a, they're the CFO of that business, mm. right? And it's, and a it's very really important. important and they shouldn't downplay it. No one else should downplay it. Actually, no matter what that farm business does, its success or failure is measured in dollars ultimately, mm. right? And we know that we've got a lot of really big successful clients and the difference between them and everyone else is is financial management. Yeah, cause, and they right? actually re really prioritise it. Yeah. And they see it as such an important function within the business because no one can actually operate without it. I was talking to the Curtin University students yesterday and I was trying to find an analogy to say about this financial management of your business stuff. And I said, okay, think of it like fitness. Doing it really well is good for everyone, period, right? Some people are gym junkies and they're just going to be all over it, right? And Nat's a finance gym junkie, right? So, <laughs> so you know, you, you, there's going to be that and I was talking to the students, there's going to be this someone in this room here and you know who they are. They go to the gym every day and they're doing protein powders and they're drinking creatine and, you know, they just love that stuff, right? And there's one of you in this room who thinks getting up from the couch to the TV is the most exercise you ever want to do in any one day, right? Yeah. But, and there's most of you are somewhere in between, right? 
but doing the finance for your business in like fitness is important for all of you right so you don't have to be the gym junkie or the finance junkie right but you do have to turn up every day you do have to do your books you do that and you have to you, have a rhythm and you have to consistently do it well and you find it and your business your farm business or any business really will be much healthier to to keep the analogy going as a result um and you don't have to love it and i think people say that to themselves they go oh and it's often you've there's this case and you i don't know how many people you've interviewed in your day there's a someone's married into a farm generally one of the girls is married into a farm and at some point she gets handballed the books right and she probably hates bookkeeping right but it's just you're a farm wife that's your job right okay i'm not going to get into the politics of that but own it right really own it you and you don't have to be in there's someone who you're going to know as a friend who'd love it and they go why and they'll lecture you about why don't you do this and why don't you do that you don't have to love it but treat it like you've been to the physio they've given you a good program just turn up to the gym every day do your thing and eventually you'll feel better you'll sleep well at night and the business will be happy too you know where you're at don't you yeah we always say that go seeking the brutal truth right because your numbers, it doesn't matter if they're good or bad, right? But you have to know what they are. Because if you know what they are, you can make a decision. And you can make a real decision. And you have time to make a decision. The earlier you know, the more time you have to either grab hold of an opportunity or mitigate a risk. Yeah. But if you it scares you and you don't want to look at them, well, then... You're just literally, I mean, we have it written on our hope. You're, you're hoping. You so we've got it written. You say when you walk in. It's not a strategy. Hope's not a strategy. <laughs> yeah, it's, no. <laughs> it's not. Um, I've got, well, a question I'd love to finish on with both of you. Mm. I think we, we could definitely keep chatting and go down all kinds of routes. But a question which I find that our audience love and, and that I actually love hearing from different people. So I'll ask each of you to answer separately. But if you had the chance to go and chat to year 10 students about careers in agriculture, what the industry looks like today in an and kids in a metro school, what would you say to them about the opportunities in agriculture today? David, you go first. All right, I'll go. <laughs> uh, all right. I would say that get the idea of this, this what I call the Hollywood version of ag out of your head, right? The red barns and the chickens and the this stuff is the most sophisticated industry and the most diverse industry. In other words, you can be an ag and you can be a chemist. You can be an ag and you can be an engineer. You can be an ag and you can be a commodities, a derivative trader. You can be an ag and you can be a soil scientist or an animal scientist or a veterinary surgeon or, you know, and you're still an ag, right? And if you're in farming, you can be all of those things in one day, <laughs> right? You know, a lot of people, especially the young generation, the only difference is the young generation, the old generation, I think they're just a bit more honest about it than I think we have been is that we call anyone young, anyone under 40, by the way, <laughs> that people say, I want variety. I don't want to be bored. And I'd say if you want variety and you don't want to be bored ever, work an ag, right? And you don't have to crutch wet sheep in the rain to be an ag, right? If you want to crutch wet sheep in the rain, <laughs> wet sheep in the rain knock yourself out. But that's, it's not about digging holes and shoveling hay, you know? There's a bit of that, but only mm. if you choose. Um, I don't know. I think, like, they also should take the time to explore to find out what it is they want to do in ag. There's so many different opportunities where they can get work experience before they actually dive into one path. So it's like, you know, take the time to explore who you want to become, whether it's getting work experience and, you know, on farm or in any of the areas that Dave just said, because you mm. don't actually have to rush. I think the thing is they spend, like, people rush. If you work out who you're sort of wanting to be by the time you're 30, fantastic. That's actually really, really good. But it's going to change a lot even after that. But at least you're heading in the right direction. So that's, yeah, I guess it's just take the time. Take your time and try things and mm. see what, what works, what you do and don't like. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, and you don't have to do it like mum and dad did it. No. You know, like, and I think sometimes that puts us off. So, you know, we look at how our parents work and they might be working and you go, man, I'd never want to do that. Yeah. Well, you don't have to do that. You can do it different. 
But you, yeah. like, but like as Dave said, you also need to take the time to actually learn what something's about well because if you spend five minutes doing it, you won't know what it's about. Mm. So you kind of got to lean in a bit. And I think people get surprised and I think it's I, – I'd say this to all year 10 and I'd say, always say this to our boys all the time. I said just, okay, first of all, that whole concept about passion, the biggest load of BS ever, right? It's not a passion. In other words, you end up loving something you're good at, right? And you don't know what you're going to love until you're actually good at it. So just find something, go hard at it, and get try and get good at it, right? Even if it is crutching sheep in the rain, get really good at it. And then decide, once you're good at it, then decide whether you like it or not, right? But if you fiddle around on the edges of everything, you're never going to like anything, I guarantee it. And you're going to be sitting there at 50 going, oh, I haven't discovered my passion Because you never lifted the hood up for anything. Right. Mm. So you've got, to go, you've got to go deep. You've got to go hard on one thing. Don't flit between one thing and another. Just And if, and if that's one thing, an ag or discover something. And, you know, and basically if you find someone who's good at what they do, shut up, listen, take notes. Mm. Ask questions. Yes, lots. <laughs> Well, Dave and Matt, thank you so much for sitting down and having a chat. It's been good to sit down with you both and understand a little bit more of that journey that has been AgriMaster to what it is today. So thank you. Good night. You're welcome. Thanks, Ollie. Thanks, Ollie. Well, that's it for another episode from us here at Humans of Agriculture. We hope you're enjoying these podcasts and, well, if you're not, let us know. Hit us up at hello at humansofagriculture.com. Get in touch with any guest recommendations, topics, or things you'd like us to talk and get curious about. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Rate, subscribe, review it. Any feedback is absolutely awesome and we really do welcome it. So look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane. We'll see you next time. See ya.